Jones. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life Well, I am super excited today uh, with our next guest. Uh, we are down here at Portal Atlanta, uh, joined uh, with my colleague, Suna Lumay. Um, she is an entrepreneur and she is uh, trained in both science and the business arts through her MBA. Um, and she oversees all of our operations here in uh, Atlanta for Portal. Um, we're overjoyed uh, to get a chance to speak with our good friend um, and really um, icon here in Atlanta, Maria Thacker Gothi. Um, Maria is deeply committed to her important nonprofit work and the development of the biotech ecosystem here in Atlanta and really across the whole Southeast region. Thacker Gothi received her BA from Sweetbriar College before attending. Tulane School of Public Health and Medicine, where she studied health, marketing communications, and maternal and child health. Thacker Gothi's dedication is notable. She's worked at Georgia Bio for almost 17 years, climbing the ranks from marketing, project, and membership manager to president CEO, and is also the CEO of the Center for Global Health Innovation. Additionally, she's a board member of the CJD Foundation and the American Red Cross of Georgia. We are really so fortunate to get the chance to discuss her experience in both nonprofit uh, and for-profit uh, across the whole landscape of everything that she's been doing uh, here in life sciences. So Maria, welcome to the show. Thanks okay. for having me, John. Yeah. And Suna. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, what I wanted to maybe get a chance to do first is provide, if you can, a little bit of an overview of what you're working on right now. Um, what are some of the important projects that you have underway? And then throughout the discussion, we'll hope to talk a little bit about your journey, kind of what led you to here, sure. and then also um, kind of what's what's next as well. But if you could just start describing kind of what are you focused on right now in your current role? Well, really, we're focused on elevating the Center for Global Health Innovation, which is really a unifier across our entire ecosystem here, and not just in Atlanta, but across the state and even the region. It was a ask from our life sciences community, because we represent, of course, biotech and pharma, but also device and diagnostics, um, and even our public health community to uh, be a stronger voice uh, across the life sciences and public health community for the industry and be an intersection in a, a Switzerland, if you will, to bring the community together. So. Um, continuing to elevate that brand um, with the understanding that we also bring to bear the power of community engagement through our public health partners that um, many don't, you know, many of my counterparts around the country don't have that capacity um, are is really the biggest priority at the moment. We're doing that through a physical space for uh, incubator space for startup companies here in Midtown. Um, but we're also uh, Continuing to elevate our work from a policy perspective through our advocate through our advocacy work at a state and local level, but also even federal work with our colleagues up on the hill in D.C. Um, we're acting through various uh, programs through partners um, uh, across the university system, like like Georgia Tech, who I know y'all work closely with as well. Um, but also through our efforts in building relationships across the state uh, at Augusta University, KSU, and the companies um, and UGA, and all the companies that are within those um, growing regions of the state of Georgia. So um, we do that through program development and really just working to bring 
frankly, people like yourself, John, and the network you uh, have well beyond the Southeast uh, to bear here into the state to uh, get to know our community and provide better access to potential funders and investors to the industry. So um, we have a number of projects we're focused on right now. I think one of my biggest passions that I've always had from the beginning um, and what I went to school for health ed, doing my master's in public health and health education is actually continuing to grow our workforce projects. We run this, um, the only uh, life sciences um, uh, institute and our, through our Office of Workforce Development in the Southeast. And we have a lot of uh, burgeoning projects. We just launched a new project with Emory actually this week. Um, and uh, we see a lot of continued potential to help support the um, big needs we have in workforce development for the companies that exist here and the companies that we work closely with the state of Georgia on to uh, recruit here into the state of Georgia. And even the site here at Science Square um, near Georgia Tech, uh, the, the workforce needs around that. So workforce is a massive priority for us. Um, and will well, always be. It's exciting times today, especially to describe, you know, all of the intersections and really you know, with CGHI, you know, being the, the nexus for so many different activities. And as we know, high functioning life sciences ecosystems rely on transparency and the ability yeah. to connect and, you know, the, the notion of, you know, connecting the dots, if you will. But, you know, you've been building this for a long time. So mm. talk a little bit about what that was like. I mean, to get to today, which is really... Uh, you know, I, I believe Atlanta is poised, you know, for the next decade to mm -hmm. continue to grow and scale in, in all parts, you know, sure. um, from the standpoint of, you know, the uh, growth of startups coming out of the uh, universities in the region, uh, but to large pharma and the workforce and all the things that you, you've described that, that you're right in the center of. But what was it like? Uh, go back 10 years. What was it like 10 years ago? <laughs> what progress has been made to today? And kind of what are the things you maybe you're most proud of today? And and then and then we can also kind of think about and what and what's next? What what has sure. to come next? Well, uh, unification is what needs to come next. Less silos, and I think everybody says that and agrees with that across a lot of different ecosystems, not just here in Georgia and Atlanta. But um, I mean, ten years ago, frankly, even seventeen years ago, I fell into biotech. I'm a public health person by training, but um, what I found over the last decade, in particular, is um, I guess someone, a friend at Microsoft, who's now McKinsey, actually said, you know, your magic skill is magnetism and helping connect people. Um, I always just tell people I have a really good Rolodex, but I'm finding that's not very helpful. Helpful with the Gen Zers, they don't know what a Rolodex is. So, um, um, but um, you know, it, I, I think, frankly, yes, the we've come a long way in ten years. And but even ten years ago, we always had the right ingredients. But quite frankly, um, the silos that persist across our community, and you see this in a lot of cities, um, you know were even more siloed 10 years ago than they are now. I think um, a lot of that's starting to break down. I think the shift, um, the you know, as technology advances and the ability to connect more effectively, I think that's one piece of it. But I also think that the city and the state's dedication to grow our high-tech sector, um, the technology sector has been a um, huge boon for um, other innovation sectors, frankly, here. So um, as the tech sector's grown and more advances are happening in the health technology space, I think um, that's pro provide an opportunity for broader life sciences to harness that type of network and build from there. Um, and also, as we see the advancement of um, digital therapeutics and needing real-time data as we advance pharmaceuticals and doing research in patients' care, I mean, that intersection with the digital health space and the tech space is just going to go stronger and stronger. And we see this everywhere. But 
what we have um, in Georgia, particularly in Atlanta, is um, I think it's now the fourth largest tech sector um, in the country. So that is something that I think for the health side of things, we can really use to harness um, to grow the sector in a unique way. Um, I've uh, The community, and I agree with this, we can't try to be Boston. We can't try to be Chicago, where I know you guys are from, or the Bay Area, because we're not. They, they're decades ahead of us in many of those cases. And um, they've had a certain type of political will um, to invest in the growing life sciences or biotech sector in those committees, in those communities. But here in Atlanta and in Georgia, we're still educating a lot of those leaders and the those that have you know, literal political positions or positions of power to help move the needle in this particular sector, they're still learning about the sector. It's complex, as we all know, and it takes um, the work of, in our role, coordinating the community to educate that um, community. So I think that um, we have a lot of opportunity. We continue to have the right ingredients with outstanding research universities, and it's not just one or two universities. We've got, yeah. I think, and what is it, six R1s and a couple R2s as well yeah. um, that really bring a lot to bear for a variety of different areas in life sciences, whether you're healing people or feeding or fueling the world. Um, it's uh, We have a huge opportunity in all areas of biotech. Um, and I think we have a capacity in ag tech that has not, in, at food and ag tech that has not been harnessed at all yet. And that again intersects with data and technology. So um, where we've come, um, we were kind of there 10 years ago, but I think there's starting to be more of a political will and a community will to break the silos down more effectively. And quite frankly, there's also just the realities that COVID has presented us um, for manufacturing and distribution and wanting to reshore a number of those things um, that we're seeing a huge amount of opportunity with big, you know, global biotech companies looking to build more manufacturing on stateside. And quite frankly, Atlanta and Georgia is a massive supply chain community. And that is something we can tout, whether it's our airport or ports. Um, I actually read yesterday the Savannah ports are going to be doing more cold chain now. So um, they're uh, just got a huge amount of money to do that. So yeah. that's outstanding for our industry. And I think yeah. that's something that's kind of all coming to a head. Yeah. Um, yeah. And quite, yeah. Well, the, the cool part too, um, and there are some similarities that we've noticed even in Chicago, when you kind of fuse the engineering, the computing and the life sciences um, for many different applications. So it could be med tech, could be therapeutic, could be a combination of all those things. So you use the word intersection a few times as you were describing kind of what's happening in Atlanta and more more to come in that regard. But convergence of those technologies and the kind of the the bedrock of tech being a, an underpinning of what's already here and then layering in, I think, the uniqueness of Atlanta as well is um, diversity. So not only diversity of workforce, diversity of different, you know, f functional backgrounds, diversity of industries, all those kinds of things. And I'm just curious, because um, we talk about this a lot yeah. soon, all right, as we try to uh, imagine, you know, how we can welcome more talent into the industry. You talk about the opportunity in biomanufacturing in particular, but there's a challenge there, right? I mean, the, the there's a scaling challenge as yep. it moves beyond, you know, the idea in the lab and through clinical trials. Now we got to make the material um, and we don't really have the infrastructure nor the talent pool to, to do that. I wonder what the thoughts or the opportunities might be. And I don't know if soon if you have a follow on question there, but it's really kind of this notion around how do we take advantage of the um, opportunity from a market demand perspective as we see more of these biotherapeutic agents being in demand and getting approved, and that's likely gonna continue well into the future. What do we think is the opportunity? How do we 
um, create the conditions where uh, more can be welcomed into that workforce. Yeah, I, I mean, I, we see it with the big tech, right, moving to the city. And you kind of mentioned it before, we're not San Francisco, we're not Boston, we're not Chicago. Um, and one distinct difference is the diverse, highly educated talent that does get drawn to Atlanta just yeah. because of the culture. And, I, and I'm also, you know, interested in what, that sets how that sets Atlanta apart from these other um, ecosystems yeah. and how that's actually driving innovation as well. So as John's alluded to, like the and you too, the different ways in which the state's investing in technology and development, manufacturing, but then how do you leverage the community that is a natural draw for such diverse minds who come with their own yeah. uh, ambition and and kind of focus on equity and Sure. Everything that comes with that. Well, I mean, we've been working with the community statewide for a long time. We're in our fourth year now with our public-private partnership with the state of Georgia to train um, teachers across the state on how to teach life sciences in the classroom. Over 12 years ago, we worked with... Um, um, gentleman named Jeff Rapp and Phil Gibson, um, who helped develop the biotech curriculum here in the state of Georgia. And we help maintain that with industry. So we've always been that intersection to help build that future workforce. Um, and the reality is uh, the gap, and if you look at national data um, that we do in partnership with colleagues around the country that do some workforce programming as well, such as Mass BioEd and um, Biocom and CLA in California and Oregon Bio, uh, the national reporting shows that 70% of the gap in life sciences workforces actually only requires a high school or a two-year degree. So we dedicate a lot of our workforce time into that, and that's where we see a lot of our big company partners here in the state, such as Takeda and Burner Engelheim Animal Health and Dendrion, wanting us to spend the time. They want us to build that future pipeline they have the people they have to hire they're going to hire them wherever they can find them at this point but if they know they have that pipeline coming up it's really important so that public private partnership which is really at the core of all of our programming um, uh, is with the state of georgia has been crucial um, we are working now to actually increase that ask with the state of georgia from their current investment into our program to scale it and continue to grow the programming we've already introduced life science careers to over forty-two thousand kids and of that are in title one schools to hit on your diversity aspect, um, which really describes the landscape of the school from an economic, of the school system here uh, from an economic standpoint. And some of these classrooms we walk into there, I think there's one classroom um, down in Bainbridge, I believe, where we have a very large manufacturing partner. Um, it is 96% um, uh, black mm -hmm. and the kids do not it doesn't resonate with with them when they have the um, who I, these I love these gentlemen, but over sixty or over fifty year old white gentlemen come in and talk to them. I, it wouldn't resonate with me either. So we work with them and we try to find ways to bring in kids and, and um, young people that are in the industry that they can relate to that are not decades and decades apart. I think there's very much a generational aspect to it to inspire them to go into the industry. And I think from an economic development standpoint, one of the biggest things that actually the only thing really we are brought in to do, and it's myself and Chris, Kristen Boscon, who leads my, leads my office of workforce development, who do this the most, we come in um, to support the State Department of Economic Development to um, find ways to talk about workforce and customize what these companies need. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that Moderna is coming here is because of our diverse workforce. It was it was blatantly clear that we've seen that. And many of the companies we work with, like the couple of big ones I mentioned earlier, diverse workforce is crucial. It is aligned with their strategic corporate priorities as well as um, 
just, you know, it's just good for business, frankly. So they're moving in that direction. We're training in that direction. We are looking to also scale the opportunities we have and the training we offer well beyond Georgia, wherever we can. Um, and we're finding new ways to also help those kids and young people that are also at risk. The partnership we just um, program we launched, I think, two days ago with Emory in Europe. It is a biotechnician um, program. They're going to Emory's going to be having a handful of um, young at risk teens mm-hmm. go through a training and they basically are it's apprenticing in many respects. And one of the other big gaps in workforce right now is university research labs. So this is filling a niche and Europe does work in Boston area for life sciences. But this particular program, they're piloting here um, for a few reasons. And one of them is diversity. So, yes, to your point, Zuna, I think that one thing we do have um, is a diverse workforce that is ready and willing to be trained. They're spread across the state. Mm -hmm. And we have excellent partnerships with the technical system of Georgia here um, to really advance that. And we wanna not only get those with John's world world of experience, but we wanna get those people that are within 10 years of graduating to come and inspire those future kids too. Yeah, no, exactly. And And I think that's the element you just underscore a point you made earlier on was the 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 point around it makes good business sense. So, I mean, if if you're continuing to enrich and diversify uh, your team, um, you are also opening up new opportunities. New, We know that that's where innovation happens, right? With diversity of backgrounds, diversity of ideas, diversity of thoughts. And yet, when we think about every rank within the growing or large scale organization, there's opportunity for that innovation all along the chain up to the CEO level and into the boardroom. And that also from the business perspective opens up new markets. I mean, there are new uh, problems that are offered and, and, and solutions by these companies can be developed going after uh, problems that now this more diversified team better understands yeah. and and can go and address, mm-hmm. you know whether it's more women in the boardroom, more women of color, more um, uh, I- I- uh, individuals that have uh, diverse backgrounds in any description of that word. You are going after and creating new market opportunities. That's good for business as well, and so driving economies are key to being able to uh, grow and scale any organization. I think it's really a, a bottleneck for biotech in particular, given that there's so much work to do in welcoming a, in a much more diverse workforce that it, it gets to a point where biotech companies that may be succeeding at you know that initial innovation, the ability to grow, scale, and manufacture and distribute over the globe is gonna be a real uh, constriction point if you're not really accessing um, and, and training a more diverse workforce. Yes, and I'm just going to react to that. So one big capacity we have in it, in Atlanta and in Georgia is we have the largest public global public health workforce in the world. That is something we've not harnessed for economic uses, and that's part of the reason we have are rebranding under the Center for Global Health Innovation, that intersection of innovation, our capacity, and global health. And the reason I bring this up is I was at a, um, a Jeffrey Copeland lecture at CDC, I think it was a week ago, maybe it was two weeks ago, and um, this is a, a, a big... Uh, public health lecture that happens a few times a year. And um, they brought in the head of PEPFAR, um, which is a very successful um, government um, effort that's been around for years to tackle HIV. But um, the head of PEPFAR 
as a reaction in the coalition they built in response to COVID, um, they harnessed the network they had for PEPFAR um, to respond to COVID. And he shared that I think it was 99% of the vaccines for COVID came from outside of the continent of Africa. Hmm. And in response to that, they've already identified, I think it was six to nine different sites across the continent to scale up biotechnology mm. manufacturing sites to scale vaccine manufacturing. And um, for me sitting in a room, and this is where the intersection breaking down silos comes back um, and why we wanna create this space where we bring our partners in the public health space to bear um, with the amazing innovators that we all know and, and love and talk to all the time is, you know, Everyone in that room was very much focused on the public health aspects of it and everything. And then they, yes, they drop this, oh, we're identifying a bunch of these sites to manufacturing. And when I look at that, I say, okay, the regulatory aspects of getting those actually up and scaled, building the workforce for it, you can build all the infrastructure you want, but if you don't build that 10 to 15, 20 year pipeline of workforce, the skilled labor you need and all the other aspects of it, it doesn't matter how many bricks and mortar buildings you build. So I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to build partnerships and even scale like our education programs even there to help with um, building a workforce that is even more global that really helps tackle um, inequities across the planet um, using innovation. But it also allows us an opportunity to educate and facilitate stronger relationships between those community health workers or community programs that people, you know, organizations, agencies like CDC or organizations like the Task Force for Global Health execute around the around the planet to understand how the innovations and talk about the innovations with the communities they serve more effectively and allow them to build better trust with the biotech and pharma space a better trust around vaccines and help with this, you know, tackle really complex and hard issues like vaccine hesitancy and, um, you know, frankly, racial and political distrust across parties and communities. So I know that's big and gets a lot more political, but it's true. And, and yeah. we see that with a lot of work we do in communities, even here in Atlanta. So yeah. no, that's, that's great. Yeah, yeah I, I actually like uh, think that's a really good point, because for me, being from the Mid-Atlantic and coming down here, also touching sometimes on um, digital health innovations. Mm -hmm. What I find is really unique about the Southeast is that if you can have a, and bring forth a solution that solves a problem down here, it really is globally applicable because, mm -hmm. you know, not only do we have the racial and ethnic uh, diversity here, but we have also the socioeconomic yeah. and also geographically diverse patient populations yes. and, and realizing that and incorporating that into your strategy, whether it be, you know, how, how does environmental factors impact the way this therapeutic mm -hmm. is actually going to impact your your lifestyle um a lot of there's a lot of parallels especially when you look at rural georgia oh, yeah. to and and i've done work in uh west africa and so it's mm -hmm. just like sometimes going over there i'm just like oh man we got the red dirt in both places yeah. <laughs> so, well that's actually how i ended up in new orleans I, yeah. I remember the dean of the time was said uh it's very few cities you're gonna be able to find a patient population that's going to be an you know, easier, very similar to some of the um, lower economic countries around the world. So I think there's a lot of parallels here. And I think, but the, the piece of it, we can create any type of innovation that's going to potentially create a world of solutions, but if the community won't use it and doesn't trust the person delivering that's the message, question. it's not going to happen. Yeah, that's my question is what's mm -hmm. driving, at some point the market needs to kind of pick it up and, and run with it. We're talking about Moderna coming down here yeah. to access the divert. So it's, it's, some of those things are happening. Mm -hmm. What about on, clinical trial enrollment mm -hmm. and, you know, having, you know, diverse enrollees and access and all mm -hmm. the challenges that go with being part of a clinical trial that, you know, are not um, 
that are that are, that are built for a certain system and sure. certain types of individuals. How is 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 that changing at all? Is it is it you know is it changing and yeah. what is or what is triggering it to change faster if if at all? Well, I think <laughs> I think there's always the. Um, statements, platitudes, and I think there's also the will to change it. Sorry, I'm going to be a little bit cynical, but the patience and understanding and willingness to listen to the communities that are actually going to be having to trust that corporation um, to uh, utilize their neighbors and friends for trials, Mm -hmm. that's the big gap. And it takes really listening to communities. And I do Mm -hmm. think um, we're in conversations, uh, I can't say the names yet, apologies, but with two very large biotech companies that do not have a presence here in Georgia to advance their clinical trial programs through the community work we've been doing through our Office of Health Equity and Crisis Coordination. And really what we have done and um, what we've seen during COVID as well is we need to empower the communities to deliver the message for us. So we continue again being that Switzerland. We're acting as a facilitator between brilliant minds from Johns Hopkins and Emory and Morehouse and taking um, lessons learned from them and educational tools they provide and getting the input from black church leaders and Latino, Latinx, Latin, Latino leaders to say, okay, well, this and what you've developed actually resonate with my community. And can they even interpret it to talk about it with their community? And as opposed to just taking it from the academics and saying, okay, do this. And we try to adapt it for them. And um, we also act as a, you know, as that group to say, okay, brilliant doctor, so-and-so, you may not think this person's right, but they're the one living there and you need to react and help you know, we get to be the bad guy and tell the person with a million degrees to, you know, you know, swallow your ego right. and, and listen to the community leaders. So we have um, we we have a very strong presence and strong partnerships with a number of uh, national black church groups. And so we harness a lot of faith leaders. Um, and we also have an NGO roundtable, which during COVID we have. Um, it was really fascinating to see, you know, leaders from, um, you know, Sikh, leader, Sikh leaders and Muslims, uh, the Jewish community, as well as, you know, Black Baptist Church and other Christian faiths come together and facing the same challenges. So I think that going back to the clinical trial aspect of it, it is the corporate partners utilizing those that work within the community in a way that's also going to um, be meaningful, but also sustainable. So we pay all of our community health workers. Not Nobody wants to work for free these days. I can't even pay my, inter- I mean, I got to pay my interns, y'all. Um, and if we pay, we pay all of everybody. So we pay our community health, tra- we train them. It brings economic, um, it helps tackle some economic inequities in the communities. It helps with building trust. And what we found with our vaccine work through our vaccine access and training program, which we're now moving to tackle things like hypertension and other um, disease areas, how do we harness these communities and these community health workers to um, really um, deliver the message that um, these clinical trials are important and you participating will help deliver better access to care and better treatments and drugs to your neighbors and your, you know, your partners and whatever. Um, and we want to continue that. We don't, what, what, what I'm worried about and what many are worried about now, especially with the administration planning to declare the COVID emergency over um, by early summer, is the COVID money is going to run out. And that's allowed a ton of community relationship building to happen and community organizers to build a lot of trust. But once the money's out, that trust starts to go away. Mm-hmm. And how do we find new ways to fund? And I think that's where the private sector really comes in. Mm-hmm. And they can use it, of course, for their bottom line. We have to get drugs and therapeutics to market much more quickly for patients. But if you take those relationships and partnerships like groups like ours have built, as well as many other organizations have built, to now start to take those and build trust around clinical trials, around 
around diversifying um, samples and biobanks or whatever it needs to be, we can really help build a more diverse um, research ability to yeah. advance these therapies more effectively. And I think that's where the big concern is because the feds bring in the most money, but there's a lot of money in the private sector, mm -hmm. not just philanthropically, but from mm -hmm. a corporate perspective, sure. they can really drive change forward and allow these communities to trust us more effectively. Yeah. So, because I can't deliver the message. We yeah. got to empower the communities to do it themselves. Well, Maria, I mean, you're such a um, inspirational, passionate and effective leader. And, you know, I just look at your, your mission based approach to everything that you're doing. And I'm just curious if you could share a little bit about your journey to, to today. What, what, what led you into the role? What was anybody or anything that inspired you? I know your dad was a yeah. you know, famous scientist at, at CDC, um, you know, really a major leader that kind of built CDC, not mm -hmm. unlike his daughter, who's now building <laughs> and scaling, you know, a whole uh, ecosystem and enterprise. Um, it, and not to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine that was, he was an influential uh, character in, in your um, in, in your own path. Were. Yeah, yes. I mean, both my parents were, um, and they've got a very fascinating story. What I won't dive into too deeply, but um, yeah, my father was a um, at the agency at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for just shy of forty years, and um, he led the um, I think what the disease detectives, epidemic intelligence, the EIS officers that everyone now has heard of because of COVID. Um, he helped manage that, but he also started. A, he was the first director for the National Center for Environmental Health out of the Shambly campus, which is part of Atlanta. Um, and um, I think my dad, um, his whole motto, and it's the CDC library is named after him actually, um, is here to serve. Hmm. And that always resonated with me. It resonated with my sister and my mom and frankly, everyone he touched. Mm -hmm. You know, we always think of political leaders as public servants, which they are, but I do think nonprofit leaders are also public servants and those that do volunteerism that may still work in the private sector are as well. So I think, you know, my whole inspiration does come from my father, but also seeing what my parents went through as a interracial couple. Um, my mom from Puerto Rico, but mostly growing up in the South Bronx and my dad being a you know, a typical Midwestern kind of farm family, howdy kind of guy. Um, and what they went through and hearing those stories um, coming up, it just they both were very inspiring for me to want to change and be involved in the community I work in. And I really fell into biotech, though. I mean, my whole, I thought I was going to teach high, high school English and specialize in Shakespeare. That's what I went to college for. And then I had a, a little bit of a falling out with a certain dean and wasn't going to finish that degree. So I pivoted and um, fell into the environmental sciences. Yes, well, it wasn't that. That was yeah, very good. Um, but um, still love Shakespeare, by the way. But um, we, I fell into public health via a. Um, uh, experience uh, fellowship at the CDC in environmental health at ATSDR and um, really found it fascinating when at the end of some of my research that I did in chemical demilitarization, I was able to spend the last few months of my fellowship working with the communities that we were um, working in and uh, seeing in many respects that communication breakdown of, you know, the big scary government agency telling you everything is okay, don't worry about that steam coming out of whenever, you know, the, the vent hood, um, which they didn't have to worry about for the record, but it, we weren't connecting with people on a real way. It was more of a reactionary and um, too complicated and you had to break it down. And that's what got me interested in health education. And um, it was funny and doing my graduate degree, we had to do like a mock-up commercial. And this was in the early days of, you know, big pharma commercials and all that. So one of my first storyboard comms projects was a storyboarding, a pharmaceutical commercial, having no idea that I was going to work in right. the world of biotech and yeah. pharma. 
I'm not. <laughs> but um, and then when I left, uh, when Katrina hit, I still I was planning to move to Colorado, but the storm hit. I ended up coming back home here to Atlanta. And yeah. a friend of mine at the agency was like, "Hey, there's this biotech thing. They need like a marketing person." And I was like, "Okay." So I applied and I got the job. Full disclosure, I may have been the most affordable person also at the time, but it was it was it's been a blast. And I think you know one of the I would say blessings of how I fell into this is that being in a position with a with um, Georgia Bio at the time, and and frankly even a position at any of my counterparts around the country, like John at iBio and others, is it affords you access to very senior executives and a very complex industry and very powerful people. And you learn things and observe things. And if you're willing to take in and, and learn, you find ways to connect people in meaningful ways. And um, I think that's part of the reason I spent so much time with the organization is the people that I get to know, their passion for wanting to solve a problem for a certain patient population or because of food inequities or in some cases innovations to, you know, help with access to toilets and clean water and other countries, um, and frankly, even in areas of the United States, quite frankly, um, you know, that's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. I'm not sitting at a desk doing the same thing every day. Every day I have a new conversation like we're having now. And every day I, I learn about a cool new innovation, safer vaccine methods or safer, better diagnostics to, you know, diagnose cancer earlier. I mean, it's just exciting every day. So that's how I fell into it. And um, I'm very grateful for, you know, everybody in the network I've built. And now it's for the good of everybody else. Yeah. No, yeah. That, that, that I love that story. And I maybe segueing to kind of the future and kind of where things are going. Maybe I would ask uh, the question, um, first around kind of um, bio, the industry, yeah. and kind of Atlanta and Georgia's place in the industry, kind of forward-looking. Mm-hmm. And then maybe Suna could ask a question more from the ecosystem perspective, where you know, the opportunities around you know the ecosystem and where it's headed in the next couple of years as well. What are your thoughts on first the industry? Well, the industry is growing. Um, we just did our annual, uh, excuse me, every two to three years, we do a Georgia Life Sciences industry analysis. And um, three years ago, we had about 2,000 life science companies in Georgia. Um, this year, when it came out in October, we had just over 4,000. That is a dramatic jump. Now, I know a lot of companies were created due to COVID, but even taking that into account, that's a huge jump. And I think there's a number of different aspects of it. And some of those things are very good for our industry, um, such as hybrid or remote working. Um, we did a, a study with Georgia Research Alliance about, oh gosh, it's probably been seven years now. It said, why isn't our life sciences industry growing? And one of the reasons was lack of infrastructure, which I think we all know that's finally changing. Another piece of it was lack to mid-level and senior executive management. That is still a challenge to a point, but I now have quite a few companies that have their executive teams scattered around the country because we've proven we can do that. So I think that is not as complicated. The most senior positions, we still have mid-level management challenges though, and then access to capital. But um, I think um, all of that's changing. I think you all, can, you know, moving here to Georgia and putting a site here in Atlanta is very meaningful. I um, I know there are a number of venture capitalists that have open offices here or appointed, had somebody be placed here because of the burgeoning life sciences sector. I think that has to do with um, also just the storytelling improving a little bit yeah. out of our um, economic development partners and yeah. out of our universities. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, and then frankly, a need. I mean, there's there's the reality of cost of living, the reality of workforce, the reality of cost of land. And if you need to build manufacturing sites or you just are 
tired of living in cold weather. No disrespect to Chicago, but it's very cold there. It is cold. Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, people can work in multiple places. So I think the industry is having to look a little bit more diverse than just mm -hmm. traditional hubs to um, may, frankly also appeal to their workforce. So I think there's societal shifts as well as just workforce habit changes that are really changing the aspect of how biotech and real estate is looking. And I think, you know, we're an emerging market. I, I would say that. I know that. I think we have a huge opportunity and it takes, um, frankly, it's our organization's responsibility to collectively bring the community together to educate policymakers to help influence, you know, uh, better business um, incentives and things like that to attract the companies. So and that is something we do spend quite a bit of time on. We're in the middle of Georgia session now, but um, we, we will continue to move that forward. And um, uh, we have a huge opportunity here and I would hate to lose it. But frankly, the the infrastructure coming up with Science Square, with the you know startup space we're building, as well as the massive site out at Rowan between Atlanta and Athens, that's going to be great for large scale manufacturing. And then there are a number of private builds we're advising on too. So that infrastructure need shows, as well as the data from our report, this this opportunity to really grow the sector. And then you add on top of it our diverse workforce and um, the tech capacity we have. And frankly, the partnerships we have with in public health, we have a unique ecosystem that could really advance the sector and provide, you know, uh, lots of new jobs and frankly, new treatments to get to market more effectively. Because I do think the Southeast is going to be a big distribution hub, yeah. frankly. And as we see solid gene manufacturing shifting, how even manufacturing looks, mm -hmm. um, I think that we're going to continue to see our region grow, frankly, not just Georgia, but the entire Southeast. Yeah, um, I'm actually also curious about what you're seeing in terms of like incubators and accelerators for the innovators as you're thinking about, you know, your five to 10 year growth plan and, and working with partners like GRA, mm -hmm. um, how where you see that education, training, exposure to just the commercialization of IP and how how we successfully get more, you know, faculty innovators yeah. on board or really tap into some of the existing programs and strengthening them. Yeah. Like what's what's your take on where we are and where you see it going? I think we have some good programs. Um, former Coffin program, which is now Biolocity, um, they do a great job, but it is very much for Emory and Georgia Tech. Um, and I think that ATDC does an excellent job too, though it is heavy in tech. I think there's a lot of opportunity and I think there is a will across our industry um, um, to create an accelerator. We're in the process of community organizing in the industry right now. And don't worry, John, you're getting an invite too, um, or soon it will come for you. <laughs> and um, we will, we're building our own accelerator program um, that we are offering to any and all who would want to participate. We'd have a certain number of cohorts a year, but we want to be able to provide that support for not only the big universities, but even the KSUs of the world and um, the Mercers of the world that have very small research programs but you know they need to provide that support it's, and who it's knows it's just what so they commonly know. underappreciated it's, i mean oh, what it's, really it's, makes an so ecosystem needed. when i think about you know um you know georgia state yeah. and you know their funding and their startup capacities so you tend and to and i think all ecosystems too. are like this you yeah. talk about boston or yeah. mit harvard or yeah. you talk about you know the bay area oh stanford and berkeley they you can know, afford but, to be siloed to a point though well we no, can't no <laughs> true but my point is there's a lot more going on sure. that's mm -hmm. creating you know mm -hmm. commercial opportunities beyond those institutions that could talked about the most but Agreed. i think that's a really important thing to be thinking about i know we uh, think about it and try to practice it all the time as mm -hmm. we look at 
growing you know, a portal in a given city, mm-hmm. we, we say we want to be non-denominational in yeah. nature and we want to be open to all. Mm-hmm. And, in, and it's important to try to really strive in that direction, practice it as well, because you don't really know where that commercializable innovation is going mm-hmm. to come from. You can play the law of numbers and, you know, the grants and prolific faculty. And certainly yeah. that's going to be part of, you know, how, of how ecosystems grow and scale. But it, the, the bigger, more beautiful and maybe undertold story of a growth of an ecosystem is, you know, those universities that, you know, are critical to its success and growth, but maybe aren't talked about as much in the, in yeah. the headlines. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have a lot, huge opportunity here. And I think the only thing that can get in our way is ourselves, frankly. And I do think there is a culture in the big hubs and even some of the emerging hubs. If you look at Texas, for example, and and Dallas and Houston, there's a culture to want to move forward, but there's also an understanding of an industry that's very complex. And I still think we're very much in a, we need to educate beyond just each other. And um, I I think we're doing a better job. We're not fully talking in an echo chamber anymore, but we need to provide those opportunities, whether it's virtual, hybrid, in-person, to educate about the industry and build those connections and talk about it because, you know, there is a, and we hear this quite often, a big misconception. Oh, we'll have one big life sciences facility and that's going to fix everything in life mm-hmm. sciences. And that's just not the reality, especially right. a, in a state as big as we are. Yeah. I mean, Athens is doing a great job with the UGA Innovation sure. Hub and it's that's helping that community. And they've got some, they just won two new companies going up there, yeah. but it's very much ag focused. But, you know, we got to focus and coordinate and build community awareness for the industry, more trust for it and say, this is the next phase. This is building on to what the community's done for tech. And now we're moving into the health and yeah. um, patient and, 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 you know, feed fuel you know, heal space for it's, the entire It's very planet. true and reminiscent uh-huh. of what we've experienced in Chicago yeah. as well, too. So. I think COVID helped kind of move COVID the needle helped. to get more people that wouldn't otherwise be exposed and mm-hmm. uh, thinking about or talking about it that should be and should have yeah. always been, but we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's helped accelerate some things because I do think that to get to sustainability, you've got to, you've got to matter the, the ecosystem needs to matter to mm-hmm. the broader community in, yeah. in a bigger way. That's what makes it become really a long-term, you know, sustainable ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And it's not only people in biotech. It's going to be the people that are that weren't familiar with right. biotech yeah. that start right. to pour in for one reason, whether it's a job or uh, clinical applications or yeah. um, economic success, you know, or investment for well, that Well, and that's matter. why we actually train teachers. The teachers, it's like teaching someone to fish. Mm-hmm. You know, don't just give them the food, just teach them how to fish. So, yeah. so we work to teach teach the teachers because they're the messengers. And frankly, those teachers in classrooms, whether it's a technical school, high school, middle school, they don't know what's out there in these 21st century careers in life sciences. They leave our lab programs. I was at one last week in in Ackworth, Georgia, out by Kennesaw and headed to South past Macon um, tomorrow, actually, for our next one. And um, we, these teachers get so excited. You know, a kid will say, like, why do I care about biology? You know, angsty teenager or whatever. And we're actually able to say, hey, you know, you know how your uncle died of cancer? You know, this is the industry yeah. you can go in. And that yes. sparks a kid. And True. if you don't get a yeah. kid excited about science when they're young, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen in yeah. college. Mm-hmm. The data shows that. Yeah. So I think it's inspiring young people, getting the word out through those that are also other messengers like community leaders and faith-based leaders and teachers mm-hmm. and building that, you know, excitement for the industry and growth. Because what I always try to remind people of, whether I'm talking to a policymaker 
or um, a community leader or economic development partner, it's we're all patients. Like we mm-hmm. all relate to this industry. Um, I'm personally very passionate about women's health. I've had my own fertility struggles and cancer scares as a female. And I talk about the, that very openly. And I don't, I think it should be talked about more, but I'm a patient. I almost lost my leg by crushing my artery. I don't recommend that injury. Um, and I lost my father to a rare disease, but I'm, you know, even if I didn't work in this sector, losing my father to a rare disease and seeing what it does to your family, um, the impact it has, you know, just on your life in general, not to mention the actual patient, um, his was fatal. So, it, you know, unfortunately it was short, but um, we, you know, we're touched by this industry and we do need to care about what's happening in this industry. We need to advance and continue to invest in research. I mean, innovation comes out of this country. Investing in research from a federal perspective is crucial and we need to continue to fund things at NIH, NSF, and many other groups if we're gonna to continue to catalyze the sector because it does matter to your neighbor who lives down the road. It does matter to whoever's checking out the grocery store. We are all patients and we have to remember that. So I just, sorry, so, that's my little high horse thing. I know it's a- <laughs> I love it. I one uh, I guess closing question as we wind the conversation down um, is you you know if you had an opportunity to kind of give yourself advice as you were heading into your freshman year in college, what would your advice be? <laughs> oh, that wasn't on the question list, John. <laughs> um, let's see. I told here. you it's going to be unscripted. I, I hate to say it, but. And I have to believe that every day sometimes, but I think it's it's going to be okay and trust your gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and I. Even when I travel, I have to remind myself of that. Don't go down the dark alley. Trust your gut. But um, uh, always continue to push yourself. If it gets too easy, then it's time for the next thing. And I know I've been doing this, been in the same place for 17 years, but we've evolved and run new projects to push ourselves out of the normal. We have to create something new all the time. So I would just say it's going to be okay. Um, So that's the, 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 a person with ADD, um, ADHD, excuse me, uh, in me saying you'll get through it. And um, I would also say, you know, uh, and this is probably more something I've learned in managing and, and coming into leadership is also you don't have to be good at everything. You have to be good at what you're good at and then hire the right people around you or empower the right volunteers and partners around you to fill those gaps and you all will rise together mm-hmm. and you're not always right. That's the other thing, but I think that's also a generational thing. So the boss doesn't mean the boss is always right. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah, so yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, learned a lot and um, uh, I'm grateful for every relationship I get to build, but um, in the end, it's all about helping patients. I don't want anyone to go through what my family did when my father got sick. So yeah. Well, I really appreciate your closing wisdom and more importantly, really appreciate the time you took to be a part of the podcast today. And I look forward to continuing to build our relationship and partnership with you. Thanks, Maria. Definitely. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.